0: What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. My guest today is uh, a fellow and senior lecturer at Australian National University and has somebody who is personally also afflicted by the senior lecturer title. I assure you, it's the same thing as an associate professor in the U.S. They just want to, I don't know, fuck with us or something. Um, He's also author of the award-winning... The Counterinsurgent Imagination: A New Intellectual History. Uh, my guest is the one and only Joe McKay. Thanks for coming on the show, man. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks. It's good to be here.
0: So, uh, I have to be honest. Like when I came, when I first heard of the book, not when we first interacted, not when I was reading about the book, but when I first heard the title alone. I might have had a prejudice against reading it because I have like an allergic reaction to the word counterinsurgency, as most people do, I think, who lived through the first two decades of this of this century. But the book was amazing. It's it, You can get through not even the first chat, like the first 10 pages and you can see like, oh, I get why this was an award-winning book. Like, it's very good so when i think of counterinsurgency you know i think 20-year stabilization mission in afghanistan burning villages to save them in vietnam uh colonial administration of empire in the philippines but like not only are those three different sort of visual images they're also only the america lens and america's history is quite short obviously and you trace counterinsurgency back much further, you know, like, so so, what are the roots of counterinsurgency on the timeline? And like, what is the relationship between like counterinsurgency and small wars?
1: Right. So uh, the word counterinsurgency, best I understand it, enters the English language about 1960. So in a sense, you're right. Um, but the, the, the kind of category of behavior, if you like, the, the, the range of action, the, the practice of Counter-revolutionary war, which is the other term I use a fair bit in the book, uh, that dates back to someplace in early modern Europe at a minimum. So it goes a good long way back. Uh, we can talk about um, the term "small wars" enters, particularly French and German, probably English a bit, um, sometime in the 1600s, probably, probably, to refer to things that were already going on in the 1500s to one degree or another.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we start seeing it in the writing in there somewhere. It turns up in sort of you know, the French language dictionaries, these sorts of things. Um, And uh, we start to see people writing about it in a sustained way sometime in the roughly about 1750. We start seeing the first kind of instructional texts. And the subject matter of the the book is is not just counterinsurgency, but specifically counterinsurgency manuals. It's the the, the category of how to do texts, how to do this thing, um, kind of book length work. So that's when we first start seeing that genre emerge. Um, Usually use the word small war uh, around that time it's surprisingly unpoliticized at the time in a lot of respects. It's not really meaningfully kind of conservative or reactionary or counter-revolutionary because the practitioners didn't necessarily differentiate between revolutionary and counter-revolutionary war. So they're starting with just a a set of practices and tactics that might look a lot like um, a kind of a low key early modern guerrilla warfare in some respects. Um, And a lot of the people first practicing this were simply doing it on the sides of the states by which they were employed.
0: So were the early man, I mean, I want to talk about a couple of the intellectuals in this thing, but sure. um, were the early manuals, it was just a how-to without really addressing to what end?
1: To a remarkable degree, yeah. If you pick up a book like uh, the two books by uh, Johann Evelth, who's the, the, the guy in, in, in my book, hmm. or his predecessors, guys like Promets or Genet, um, both writing in French, um, they... Um, uh they'll kind of walk you through the the kind of the life cycle of the the troops involved they, mm-hmm. they'll they'll talk about partisans sometimes um or, or light troops so it's almost a a, a a cognate for other categories we have more regular areas of warfare now um and they'll just walk you through kind of recruitment training um how officers should act how they should behave in the field what you do when you get out there and you are doing these things so it's a kind of a it has a narrative structure but it's not the narrative of the war it's the narrative of soldiers becoming the professional soldiers that they're they're imagined to be and because they're professionals in the service of their their sovereign they don't really have an ideological project of their own At least they don't think they do they're just doing the the thing they've been they've been taught to do um so the pro the, the initial books walk through all of that and they're, they're getting written down because uh on at least some accounts um the authors were afraid that some of this knowledge was getting lost it was a kind of an early modern hmm. thing that had been kicked up by the early modern kind of processes of a European state consolidation, the violence of all of that in Central Europe and Western Europe, and um, uh, and they were getting rolled into the regular armies of these states. And there was this thought, maybe that some of this was going to get kind of kind of sidetracked. So, there's an attempt to record it and preserve the knowledge and produce produce a, a kind of a formal method of these things for the first time.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, one of the things that like, I really liked about the book, I guess there was a few things, but the. The idea that you were sort of surfacing the politics of of, you know, campaigns or initiatives or whatever that didn't think of themselves as political like that is that's in the DNA of a lot of my work, actually. Um, But you described counterinsurgency. you, You said the phrase like counterinsurgency campaigns are irreducibly political projects. That's kind of profound because like in that whole war on terror era you know like i remember we didn't the national security world did not think of itself as particularly political and you really drive home that it's hyper political and it's like in in after reading the book it's kind of like how could militarized violence not be hyper political it's like the ultimate exercise of state power <laughs> like taking lives so you have this three part or an argument that's got like three components to it, right? Counterinsurgency theory is conservative, high modern, utopianism. Can you walk us through what makes counterinsurgency, um, all three of those things?
1: Sure. So the the project of the book is sort of to describe how it got that way. So that's the kind of the, yeah. the state of counterinsurgency from, from around when we start using the word in the early 60s. Uh, so conservative in the kind of the small c sense of being counterrevolutionary or against radical change. Uh, sometimes sometimes what we might call reactionary, like a kind of a a, a nostalgic, trying to revert to some prior thing, but at minimum conservative.
0: I want to ask you about that in a minute. Yeah, Yeah,
1: We'll we'll, we'll get there. So conservative in that basic sense, because uh, there are usually being wars fought against movements of national liberation, projects of uh, ideological change inside states, Mm -hmm. things like this. Uh, High modernist in James C. Scott's sense. Uh, James Mm -hmm. Scott says that certain 20th century states particularly kind of ideologically minded ones develop these programs of what he calls high modernism which is an attempt to kind of radically transform the human condition in some way or 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 improve the human condition um through big programmatic projects of 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 state building that tend to be marked by their their linearity their their rationality they have a quite kind of visual geographical geospatial uh, kind of grid-like quality to them often. Like, v- literal visual grids are often a big part of the, the kind of cartographic life of these sorts of state-making projects. So he identifies this with um, with Soviet communism, but also with National Socialism um, and with some aspects probably of American liberalism or at any rate, I would in this context. Um, so um, it, it's it's the project of doing these things, not in a politically radical way, in a a, a way that intends to you can serve the prior the prior system of government. Mm. So to do build it up in a in a new and more rationalized and more systematic way. Uh, and that makes the system third of all utopian um, in that it imagines an idealized version of the world that it's trying to create. It's not um, uh, it's not simply focused on recovering the past to court or the preserving the present to court but but producing it in an idealized form. So if you think of the um, the projects of market building that I gather went on in Iraq. Uh, at various times during the American the American War, there, um, they were trying to do a kind of an idealized American capitalism, an imagined sense of how it was supposed to work. If you sort of listen to the right think tanks and stuff, as against um, just just kind of creating whatever actually existing market system, actually existing uh, electoral democracy exists in the mm-hmm. United
0: States. There's a, a tension There's a potential tension there, but you you navigate it in a way that makes total sense. You like you have this great way of distinguishing conservative politics from the politics of reaction. Um, you, actually, you Maybe it was a spinoff of the book, I don't know, but you had a International Studies Quarterly article too that really was a great walkthrough on reactionary politics. Can you sort of talk about the convergence there or how they how they overlap and don't, conservatism and reactionary politics?
1: Yeah, um, so yeah, they, they overlap and don't, that's just it. So this is an article I wrote with my, my, my grad school buddy, Chris LaRoche. Um, and we were uh, we were interested in, in in making sense of what just what 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 to think politically in the immediate aftermath of, of Brexit and Trump and all of that, mm. and to make sense of how they might fit in world politics. And the category we use, which we borrow from uh, Mark Lilla, who's a sort of humanities scholar, uh, is is reaction, um, which means not conservatism in the sense of conserving something, but wanting to go back to something prior. So we distinguished a, re- a reactionary politics as having three or four key markers. Uh, it imagines a a better past of some sort, some some lost past that was in some way better than the present. So it's a form of political nostalgia. Yeah, yeah it's, it's romantic. Uh, it thinks something went wrong. There was, a, there, there was a, a real or imagined disaster of some sort and that past was lost. And generally someone is to blame for that. So this is commonly a form of political scapegoating. And we can pretty easily imagine historical parallels with these ideological projects. Stabbed so the active there. project, yeah, the active project then is one of recovering that and there are a few different ways then you can go about doing that if these are these are your politics. Conservatism is just sort of it, it's the, the regular modernist that keeping 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 the ship of state straight doing the regular stuff not changing anything kind of program that we expect from what we used to think of as kind of old order republicans neoconservatives maybe these sorts of
0: folks. Preservationist but especially preservationist of hierarchy and inequality.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're not not conserving just anything here. Usually there are are political inequalities of one sort or another, economic inequalities. It's in somebody's interest to have these ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You had this great um, section where this was a huge point of convergence with the two of us, I think. You mentioned that conservative and counter-revolutionary ideologies shape the ends and means of strategy. And, you know, I make my same the same point about sort of the left progressive Perspective too, like they're bringing an ideology to bear um, that has particular characteristic or content, and then that content affects how they think about strategy. You know, the thing that is like, and I said I had a security studies piece last year where I sort of hashed this out with a, a friend of mine. But like, everybody has an ideology. It's not that like there's this space that's unideological where you're we doing political projects or national security projects, it, the, the claim is, and then progressives are doing a political project that's like capital P progressive. It's that everybody has an ideology of one sort or another. And this ideology is just distinct in these particular ways, which was like, I made that point And it was apparently a point of contention, um, But the the idea is like ideology necessarily shapes the ends and means of strategy. And if everyone has one, the question becomes like, what's the ideology content? And then like, how does that content shape the strategy that's sort of oriented around it? So I guess like the question for you in the book is like, in the case of counter revolution, how does ideology shape the strategy?
1: It depends when you're when you're asking because the, the the content of what's getting conserved or what's being reacted against or what have you is um it going to vary yeah. historically, right but um uh i mean it limits um it, it it limits what you what you're willing to do what you're willing to be seen to do mm-hmm. what you like to think of yourself as doing so it constrains means in a variety of ways and of course your ends are the things that radiological your ideological orientation tells you to pursue in various ways so they're both pretty tightly bound up with your with your political priors going into these things, I would think. I don't know what a program like this would look like if it really had no ideological project. You can see it getting kind of kind of buffed out pretty carefully sometimes. If you look at the the, the 2006 American Encounter Certainty Field Manual, it's um, in some respect, it is pretty carefully kind of smoothed out. Sometimes it surfaces. Sometimes, I mean, they're not dumb guys. Sometimes they just know they have to surface it, so they do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if you look at other, other instructional texts for these things elsewhere, they will have very different orientations, like the levels of violence the British Empire was willing to engage in, uh, say, 120 years ago, are, are just much higher, um, at least willing to be seen to engage in, if you like, and this the sorts of things they can get their soldiers to do um, without much reflection, these sorts of things. Uh, and the sorts of things that they're willing to, perhaps most importantly, record on the page that they are prescribing. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas I mean the levels of violence in Iraq and Afghanistan did become pretty horrific at a variety of points if I understand right but the official instructions never said to do that whereas if you look at um, the the quasi-official directions circa 1900 or 1906 in the case of the book I write about um, in the British Empire they're just saying out loud do do this stuff it, it is the quiet part loud it's not even imagined as the quiet. So um, ideolog- ideological constraints shape you in every, everywhere I've changed from. from these
0: yeah, this is a slight aside, but the I, I read recently that um, the administrators of the like large-scale internment camps in Xinjiang had studied Petraeus's counterinsurgency field manual. And it's like, first of all fuck you know like that (laughs) but that's that is like that actually makes a ton of sense insofar as like they're going they're they're sort of pursuing ends and means it through repression in Xinjiang that are like not dissimilar from counterinsurgency projects generally which are conservative modern high modern and utopian you know
1: like certainly all those categories appear to describe what's going on in xinjiang and has been for the last several years i mean i i had not heard that specifically so thank you that's interesting i do draw a circle back to xinjiang a little bit at the end of the book um just a sort of a general connection um uh, i mean it's not completely surprising Uh, once you start writing these things down they will get picked up and reused by other people um, I mean, a lot of the argument of the book is just that these ideas tend to resurface in surprising ways a lot of the time. They mm-hmm. get preserved unexpectedly. They get remembered remembered unconsciously a lot of the time. People don't know the recycling old ideas. Um, far as I know, the 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 American counterinsurgency folks don't really seem to know anything explicit about the early modern stuff. Um, and their their working knowledge of the Brits, like the, the Victorian area British is um it's more suggestive than solid, if you like. Um, it's not it's not deeply detailed and yet think these things do recur in a variety of ways i I, I worry about reproducing it myself and writing about it i don't know another way to do these things so off we go
0: yeah you have to (laughs) explain uh i was gonna ask this later but just how much does u.s counterinsurgency thinking on the page like in the in the 06 manual and that kind of thing how much does it is it self-conscious or referential to America's counterinsurgency history, like in the Philippines and, you know, just like the, the history that we don't put in our own narratives about America in the world?
1: Yeah, so a few things here. I mean, in a sense, it depends what, what 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 official histories you're looking at. I mean, the, I think that the more or less standard or official U.S. Army counterinsurgency history, is a sort of two-volume doorstopper thing. Uh, I mean, it does touch on this stuff. It basically starts on the frontier.
0: The history um, is the history. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, the, the, but the,
1: the, the, the publicly projected stuff, um, some of it's there. I mean, there's this sort of sort of parable told about the writing process where which as far as I can tell, it's true, where um, somebody's drawing just a lot on the French experience in Algeria at one point during the writing process. And somebody says eh, they tortured some folks, you know, which among other things, the French did that in that 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 situation, among a lot of other things. And uh, he said, OK, fine, we will not use this as a positive model. It's fine as far as it goes, but they're still drawing on at least one author who has that, that experience mm-hmm. um, in, in some detail drawing on him, um, quoting him with or without credit at a, very, a variety of points in the text, things like this. So these things tend to surface. The Philippines, I'm actually not too directly sure. It's so central to the American experience of these things um, that it... Um, it, it's it's there to one degree or another just because it's sort of it's part of the foundational stuff yeah, of the right. american experience of this stuff I mean, one of the frankly one of the surprises uh, for me in writing the book i'm i i'm not american myself this wasn't part of my my kind of formal education just just how central that experience was at so many stages along the way as those ideas resurfaced in in american minds along the along the the, the history of this stuff
0: yeah Man, your accent fooled me. I thought you were for sure American.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I lived in New York a couple of years, but I'm uh, I'm Canadian originally.
0: That's trippy. So you use the uh, the concept of world making in this book, which is funny because in Grand Strategies of the Left, I, I anchor it in world making too. Um, but again, again, from like the you know opposite perspective, what is world making to you? How do you deploy it in the book? Like what what's its role? You know, I, I think
1: I um, it has a sort of a, a a slightly fuzzy sense, I suppose. But I, I deploy it primarily to get a sense of kind of the scale and ambition of the projects involved. Mm-hmm. Like the, the world I would under the the word I would under, underline there is world, right? Not yeah. not 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 local, not this, not that, not not turn the corner and follow these specific directions. It is synoptic in its potential ambition. Um, so, so a big, a big way of thinking about the the scope and scale of politics, or at least its potential, particularly there's a way of talking and thinking about, um, kind of late modern counterinsurgency, that's very kind of anthropological, that imagines a lot of sort of local stuff, a lot of scare quotes, local knowledge, stuff like this. That's all true as far as it goes, but it's, it's baked into larger political projects that always have big, um, potentially transformative, potentially world or global scale sorts of concerns. So I want to get at that. I want to get at the fact that it is it is imagined to be transformational in some sense even if it's conservatively transformational preservationally transformational um wanting to get at those sorts of things and also maybe just sort of gesturing at the um i mean a lot of folks that use the, the the word they say, do it from a progressive or a radical sort of politics as a um, a way of imagining um like j- just better worlds which is great person sign me up for that to be sure, clear yeah. Um, uh, there's bad world making up there too, I guess is sort of part of the, the, um, the subtext of all this, just, just getting at the fact that the, um, you, as you were doing these things, your political opponents may be imagining, um, imagining in similarly ambitious ways. They are not visionless. They are not thoughtless. They actually have some, some big ideas, even if they pretend not to, even if sometimes they convince themselves they don't have them.
0: Yeah. You have this memorable footnote. Uh, from China Mayville, which it, it says it all. He goes, we live in utopia. It just isn't ours. And that is the succinct statement that gets at kind of how I think about world making, which is, you know, not dissimilar from what you just said. Like the masses are living in the utopia of the ruling classes in a sense. And this is how you get the, like the Steven Pinkers and people at Stanford thinking we live in the best of all possible worlds. Like, yeah, for them, it's fucking great. So, like, if we're going to have a politics that's democratic and egalitarian and peaceful, we have to have the ambition to make that kind of world. Uh, so, like, it's not about is your vision utopian or not? It's like, whose utopia are we creating and recreating every day when we wake up, you know? Um and so, yeah, that footnote, I feel like I wish I wish I had that. We live in utopia. It just isn't ours. Like a couple of years ago, I needed that footnote. When, when I was
1: editing the book, I, I prevaricated about whether or not it would be a footnote or just in the, in the main text somewhere. And I, oh, I, I, I just decided it would be more fun if you could find it.
0: Yeah, I guess. yeah, but, it's Easter egg. You know. um, <laughs> so you have a whole chapter where you're talking about how small wars in early modern Europe were not conservative initially what what made them not conservative in the beginning and then like how did they become conservative uh
1: well, they have they're conservative in the very limited sense early on that they are in service of existing states mm-hmm. which are often using them just sort of as as ancillary features of of regular war things like this um the folks who, who 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 um innovated these practices originally were told in the kind of the, the accepted narratives at least somewhat true probably Um, came from kind of militarized minority groups in Central and Eastern Europe. kind of the mountainous parts of the Balkans, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Or from just sort of rural areas where they were involved in the kind of the backwoods practices of feudal estates and things like this. So ideas that would would have emerged out of the late European Middle Ages. And um, these things get sort of stapled onto or picked up by um, the military practices of the dominant um, sometimes imperial states in Central Europe at the time. Um, And so they just sort of get carried along by that. Um, and they will have picked up some ideological valence along the way, but probably not a whole lot. Eventually, they find themselves being deployed in counter-revolutionary contexts, and then then it definitely becomes ideological. And I I associate this particularly with the American Revolution. I wouldn't say exclusively, but that makes for a good a good signal event, certainly as we're thinking through these stuff. As some of these folks get get themselves deployed to America, and they find this whole other thing going on um, after seventeen
0: seventy six. So American Revolution, good point to maybe like give a snapshot of johan you who i had not heard of this guy but it's kind of a fascinating prism on american history
1: johan i would never heard of him either i was uh, to be completely honest i was looking for ce calwell in the university of toronto main library and my eyes fell on the wrong shelf i got to e not c and there he was and i'd never heard of him so i pulled the book off the shelf and i mean just that accident extended the, the scope of the study backward That's a whole century and change um so he's a um a Hessian from uh, Hesse Castle in uh, in Central Europe, um, roughly speaking, Central Central Germany. Um, uh, military family, uh, relatively little formal education. spends almost his whole almost his whole adult life in uniform, um, including eight years in America. So he he gets training in this sort of sort of background set of practices that I've been describing of kind of traditionalized um, small warfare, Kleine Krieg in the German. Um, and uh, his sovereign, the, the Landgrave of hesse Castle was was one of the um, one of the main European monarchs who contracted their soldiers out to um, to other states, specifically to the British, to help suppress the American Revolution. So, um, I think it's late 1776. He gets shipped off to America, um, lands in New York Harbor, and just finds himself in the middle of an ongoing Revolutionary War, which is mm-hmm. something he basically never heard of. Um, so the story of his professional life through this is the story of him discovering that there's something going on that he's never seen before. Um, and we can reconstruct this in some detail because we don't just have his books, we have his diaries. He kept a, a quite detailed a four volume handwritten diary over the run of the war, um, which was preserved, disappeared for a long time. It kind of turned up during the American occupation of Germany in 1945 and, um, uh, and wound up in print in the States as a result. And uh, so we can we can reconstruct his thinking as these ideas begin to occur to him pretty quickly on the ground uh, in and around New York, uh, in New Jersey, and then down the down the mid Atlantic coast, as he is fighting the American revolutionaries and watching the British uh, screw the thing up more and more obviously in his eyes and he loses respect for them he begins to kind of like the Americans as professional soldiers He never likes them politically because he's a monarchist but he he, he, he respects them as, as, um, as, as, uh, as fighters of wars in an effective and efficient um, and honorable way. Honor is a big category for him. Um, so he watches that happens over a long period of time, eventually winds up a prisoner of war, gets traded um, at the end of the war, gets uh, handed back to the, um, to the British as they're getting ready to leave. Uh, has dinner with George Washington. The whole thing is a great story in a variety of ways, yeah. um, but um, he, he's a he's a signal figure, not the only figure, but a a visible in the historical record and an important figure um, uh, in this trans transformation where there's a turn in um, in irregular warfare away from just just a bunch of kind of strategies and mostly tactics toward a um, um, a more robustly self consciously political program of counter revolution,
0: and this is. Of course, serving the interests of the monarchy or like defending the monarchy against a, you know revolution from the periphery or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I um, mean it's I mean I I don't want to overplay the radicalism of the American Revolution. Yeah, right.
0: no, it's, no. It, it, it <laughs> <preserves> <laughs> right, from from the way it he was seeing problem. it like exactly. yeah.
1: yeah. From his point of view it involved a um a, a bunch of british subjects in in rebellion against their king and he thought that was an inherently dishonorable thing mm-hmm. and he thought that meant it had to fail and then it didn't. Uh, and that forced him to rethink the the politics in a variety of ways. So he never adopted their politics, um, uh, went back to Europe, uh, eventually took Danish citizenship and was elevated to the monarchy. So we died, Johan von Ewald, Um, wound up um, in, in the Danish war on the Napoleonic side in the Napoleonic Wars. So we wound up governing a German city as military governor for a while during the, the early 1800s, uh, retired after all of this and um, uh, having written his books and he dies in the 1820s, I think. Um, but it, it's a long life and a lot of very slow cognitive change and changing ideas over the course of that that um that set of that set of experiences
0: so how does how does you way of thinking about sort of counterinsurgency or small wars differ from like c e colwell and there's a huge gap of time there yeah
1: there is a huge gap of time and i i uh, if i had a good 1850 case to plug in i would have there, there really isn't one um so um Evel is this figure of, of early modern um early modern central and western european um kind of germanophone ways of thinking about these things uh colwell is um uh an irishman born in london um, in the 18 I think about 1860 um uh again spend his whole spends his whole life in uniform um is a, a professional soldier and gets promoted to it to a quite high level of the british military establishment um mm. and spends his whole life in and around the british empire his whole professional life is given over to this set of projects of, of foreign occupation and expansion and and domination and so on um he uh he is i would say more explicitly political than others although he seems to look to know it less uh, he is the most explicitly reactionary figure in, in the book, I would say, the most, certainly the most explicitly conservative. Um, we hear a lot about the sort of liberal imperialism of, of Victorian Britain and so yeah. on, and that, that, that's all real. He comes from a, a space to the right of that. Um, so yeah. he is remembering a, a older, purer um, set of ideas about the British Empire, um, largely fictional as, as best I can work out, but uh, a sense of Britain... That refers back to a uh, an imperial experience that had fewer liberal ideas and ideals. He talks very skeptically about progressives um, and about politicians generally. He would like the military to be left alone to do the work of foreign domination. Um, and his book, which is gigantic and encyclopedic, um, is um, uh, is just the record uh, as a sort of extended reference work of how to how to do that.
0: Man. His disposition sounds very familiar to me, people I know today. If we jump forward from Caldwell to like, I mean, I guess 1962 was a signal beginning of one, one of your chapters, like what made 1962 a big year and who was this pop star named David Galula?
1: Yeah, I mean, he was briefly a bit of a pop star on all this, uh, and then and then there's a sort of a comeback long after his death, more recently. Um, so, sixty-two matters because it's the um, it's the confluence of a bunch of historical stuff, basically, that, that uh, upon which the, the the kind of the 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 long present of the book focuses. Um, so, Caldwell and all that happens. A bunch of this gets sort of scrambled or set aside during Europe's thirty-year crisis, the two world wars, and all this, and there's mm-hmm. just not as much talk about. It small warfare or uh, or counterinsurgency and what have you it is out there it goes on i mean the the i think it's a second edition of the, the u.s marine corps small wars manuals 1940 so it's not like the 80s get set aside but they become kind of filtered through the, these other uh historical phenomena so when decolonization gets going um there are a couple of generations off uh, officers who know how to fight these wars in europe the americans don't really have a lot of expertise full stop at least not since the philippines and maybe the margins of a few other places okay. um So uh, there's a perceived need to to recover all of this. Sometime around one thousand, nine hundred and sixty, probably at the Rand Corporation, some guys coined the word counterinsurgency to describe all of this. It first appears in print. The OED claims it first appears in print sometime in one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-one in the New York Times. One thousand, nine hundred and sixty-two is it's a bunch of things. It is the year the Algerian Revolutionary War ends. So it's about the high water mark for the process of European decolonization. Uh, after that, a bunch of, most of Africa happens after that. But it's, at that point, we've kind of hit the plateau of the ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a year in which uh, the American uh, armed involvement in Vietnam starts to scale up. Uh, the American body count about doubles, although it's still under 100. The first Australians show up. There's a a, a gradual expansion of, of the American presence there going on by then. 62 uh, is the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we've got this, this overlap of the Cold War and of, of decolonization going on at the same time, these two gigantic historical processes kind of overlapping and interacting. Um, so at the macro level, you've got a big strategic imperative to to, to manage those processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Americans are not super concerned about decolonization as far as I can tell. They claim not to be, and to some degree that's true. Um, but they were really concerned about communism, at least the the, the, the suits in Washington were. And so they start going looking for a brain trust to learn how to fight anti-communist local small wars, um, to, to learn how to, to conduct themselves in these wars, and they they end up with a bunch of um, uh, a bunch of Americans who have some experience, but also um, uh, some Brits, uh, some Frenchmen to one degree or another, particularly David Galula, to whom we'll we'll come. Um, and in I believe it's June '62, Rand has a big workshop, a symposium. Over about a week in Washington D.C., where they get a bunch of these people in a room, we have a transcript of where we have a we have the minutes of the meeting, basically, at kind of book length, describing what they 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 thought they were doing and how they were going to innovate all of these these ideas. So Galula is there, Edward Lansdale is there, um, uh, Kitson is there, Frank Kitson, the Brit who'd been who was later 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 committed war crimes in Northern Ireland, on some accounts, um, and a variety of other uh, other folks too um all in this room trying to to thrash out what counterinsurgency will be and how they will do it. So it's the moment that 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 catalyzing event occurs for me.
0: So it's it's the conversation is being the demand signal for it is anti-communism
1: in the US, yeah, I, yeah. I think primarily. And they, they may have wanted to they, they they may have notionally wanted to help their their European allies preserve their empires. I suspect it looked like more trouble than it was worth to them, but so you have to keep that... your eyes on the side somehow. And...
0: Yeah, how does David Galula fit into this?
1: So Galula is um, he's uh, a North African Jewish Frenchman, born in Tunisia, raised in colonial Casablanca, uh, very much of the um, the the, the French Jewish North African experience, which was a distinctive sort of thing in in in, in the period, mm-hmm. uh, the, in, in the colonial period. Um, he acquires French nationality. Sort of marginally, it seems like somebody fudged some paperwork to cause it to happen. But, but he became a French citizen. Uh, he gets himself accepted to Saint-Cyr, uh, which is the, the sort of the, the French west point. Um, and he attends in 1940, which is the last class before the, um, uh, before the German occupation of, uh, of France. So he gets pushed through the, the last rush six-month class to try to get officers out of the battlefield for the Second World War. Doesn't amount to anything he spends. The war in and around North Africa eventually connects up with uh, with de Gaulle's um, army in exile and gets uh, gets himself into the sort of the French military establishment or back into the French military establishment from there. Um, After the war, he spends some time in um, uh, in the late 1940s in China during the sort of the the tail end of the uh, of of the, the communist revolutionary war there. So he sees the, the the impending defeat of the Republicans, and Nationalists, by Mao and the Communists. Um, he goes driving off into the countryside at least once, gets himself captured by the by by the Maoists to just sort of see how they operate, get a look at things. Um, and he, he sort of likes to tell war stories about these things, um, so we hear about it. Um, and um, uh, eventually, thereafter, does a stint in Greece, watches the defeat of the Communists in Greece, uh, the, the late nineteen forties. And then Hong Kong, where he's a military attaché at the uh, the French, I guess it's a consulate, and um, and sort of sort of at a distance observes ongoing uh, communist revolutionary war in Vietnam and elsewhere, uh, Vietnam against the French in this case. So this gets him up to the um, the late 1950s, uh, and then circa 1958 goes back to France, and he specifically asks for deployment to. Um, uh, to Algeria where the war had by then gotten up and running and, and there was a, a big a big revolutionary project to throw off French colonial rule Because he wanted to his word test some ideas. He had about how to to counter ha- to counter um, revolutionary war So he does that for something like 18 months um, He thinks he's very successful. The record is frankly a bit mixed um, Gets some stuff out of the French army ships off to America where he writes a couple of books in English
0: about how to do this Yeah, that's fascinating. Um So how did you can you can answer this by way of the Algeria experience or just globally or whatever, but like how did counterinsurgency thinkers like Galula in that moment, how were they processing decolonization like intellectually or in terms of their politics?
1: Uh, so he's he's um, pretty conservative. He, he likes the French Empire. He would like to preserve it. He was he was a colonialist to one degree or another. Hmm. And he has this this North African background as far as I can work out he never learned to speak Arabic. He was very much a, a sort of a child of the, the metropolitan French uh, political and cultural system. Um, French language education in Casablanca went literally went to a high school named after one of the, the classical French counterinsurgency officers. Um, so um, he, politically, he he belonged to all that. Yeah, uh, he seems to have have mistrusted communism um, pretty deeply in the way you would expect a right wing person to do. Um, and when he ships off to America, uh, we never he never quite says this in print. But my sense is he just he found it rhetorically useful to present himself in those terms to an American audience. So yeah. uh, so so communism becomes rhetorically very very central to his book, Counterinsurgency Warfare, which is this tiny little thing about 100 pages long. Uh, which is just just larded out with with references to Mao and Maoism in all sorts of ways, because he thought that was the central kind of warfare uh, at work here that he wanted to to oppose. So this is again, this is a case of the um, the the means and the ends getting really kind of tied up with the ideological program.
0: Yeah, that's smart. You you sort of addressed this, but maybe like say a little more. How did counterinsurgency go from being this repertoire that bolsters colonialism? to being a repertoire that fights communism like that rand meeting seems to be some kind of signal change but like wait, can you say more about that
1: yeah i mean some of the americans involved here can really only be parsed as true believers i mean edward, edward lansdale who apparently was not the basis for the quiet american but who parallels that yeah. that, that in some pretty deep ways um i mean these people were true believers in a liberal anti-communist uh, we, we we will free the world in the name of enlightenment values sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Had he read any enlightenment texts, I doubt it. But um, uh,
0: vibes, yeah,
1: they were they, 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 the vibes were unbelievably strong with these guys. Yeah, and um, uh, and so if you were um, a David Galula or a Frank Kitson, and the Americans called and said, "Can you help us with this?" You would show up and you would you would speak to them in their language, uh, at least as best you could. I think uh, because you would want to be heard um the british understood they were losing their empire and they lost their hegemonic status and they were going to um, they were going to preserve their influence how they could um, and something similar was true of the french less directly so but galula had very much signed himself up for that project once he got out of the french military um so uh, part of the meaning of minds here is um i mean it's it's uh, it's a matter of convenience
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but it um Uh, It's a convenience. It produces ideas that then become pretty deeply inscribed. So when people go back and try to recover this stuff uh, circa the early 2000s around Iraq when people, 2004, 2005, are um, finding Galula again out of print and reading him. um, uh, They think they're discovering a program for doing something they can make good use of, even though it has all of these rather, shall we say, complicated roots. And the layering of this stuff over time is, I mean, it's deep. You've got a lot of stuff piled up in the in the um, the kind of methodological subconscious of that stuff at that point, right? Just a lot of a lot of accrued, sedimented ideas layered up inside the the system. People often don't really know they're remembering things that somebody did a century ago. So a, a lot of it's just sort of convenient, or uh, or intentional or unintentional forgetting as well.
0: Yeah, that's funny. There's like an improvisation in the context of some feeling of urgency or something that's always happening in the present, and then, but. That's always taking place in a context of where there's this like sedimented accumulation of of shit or like a bricolage of, of various little nuggets that, you know, fit the circumstances or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's um, that, that kind of bricolage logic was it dropped out in the book. But it, a way of speaking about those things was kind of present in the dissertation uh, that, that underlies the book. It's a, a very different project. It involves some thinking in those terms. And yeah, it's. Um, you, you you work worked what you've got and sometimes it's what's in front of you. Sometimes it's it's what you can find written down somewhere
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you hope it'll work I guess and um, usually it doesn't Um, at least in this in these contexts it tends not to
0: yeah We have to talk about david petraeus. I mean like I think counterinsurgency I, that that's for Americans at least that's like the first name that comes to mind who who was he what's his claim to fame and for me born
1: something like seven miles from West Point apparently father was a Dutch immigrant a sailor uh he's a, 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 roughly a boomer I think generationally I, I think I think born sometime in the uh, the early 1950s and he um, uh, goes to West Point does does the thing becomes a um, I think he graduates near the top of his class, um, but be, be, becomes a star in that space, gets himself shipped off to, um, d- d- does, d- does some military service, goes to Princeton, gets a PhD, where he studies a history of counterinsurgency, which, by all accounts, really no one was doing at the time. He defended in 1987, which was a, you can imagine how much counterinsurgent thinking was going on. <laughs> that, right? um, so, I mean, he, 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 there was no course offered at West Point at the time. He had to just go to the library by his own account.
0: And he's post vietnam he, post great like he's not he's, he's
1: exactly he, yeah he's not yeah. he's not a product of any of those things the dissertation is actually on the military's memory of vietnam and how it it distorts their idea their mm-hmm. their attitudes toward these things um uh so he does that um some more in and out of the the military teachers at west point for a while uh, i believe on september 11th he was he was an aide-de-camp to the the lead military officer in bosnia at the time so he was in sarajevo on the date um, he talks about his um, uh, his time in Bosnia in this almost sort of counterinsurgent sort of way, which is, I mean, it, it's an odd way to talk about peacekeeping a country in a country where the, the war had been over for five years. But you know, whatever, it's policing, I guess, in some sense. Yeah. And um, uh, he um, he's 103rd Airborne, something like this. He 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 is in the invasion of Iraq. Um, uh, part of the early occupation of i believe mosul um gets shipped back Writes the article with which my book starts uh which is this little sort of you know five or six page set of lessons learned for counterinsurgency which is just a it's a remarkably odd document in a variety of ways uh, so he writes that and he becomes part of the intellectual network that uh, once people once some people notice that things are not going as planned in iraq um somebody packs him off to fourth leavenworth kansas which i gather is sort of an internal kind of kind of um think space for the army a kind of a, a site of internal dissent for thinking about things and working out alternative solutions and so yeah on. for decision so yeah yeah that, that that's where he is when they um when they do the very very rushed writing of the field manual in 2005 6 and it's, it's december of 2006. it's it's officially released for use in the next year in the surge
0: yeah and then off of the surge the surge worked became like a political line it didn't seem to really work but like the that was the political line going into the obama years and so then he becomes obama's politically appointed director of the cia um yeah so like this slight tangent i have i've never met petraeus i have this uh, a story where like one of my friends who was a guy who worked at the cia when petraeus was the director under obama he he told me that uh he was at this recruitment meeting or something where petraeus you know he's meeting with his human capital people and like they're talking to the recruiters who go out to the college campuses to sell people on a career in the cia and petraeus said something like why are we sending out all these recruiters like we shouldn't be recruiting from state schools like we can get all of our employees from the ivy league and from stanford and like at the time that i heard that he was still thought of as like a God or a superstar or whatever. And that immediately said something is like rotten about this guy or like something about how his status in this world says that something about us is rotten, you know, like, and my consciousness about power then was like not what it is now, but it still hit me some type of way and and it was like the first time that I was confronted with people who explicitly thought government like it should be run by a ruling class that ruling class should be from the aristocratic section of society where do you find that literally only at the ivy leagues right and like that maps really well onto the way that you talk about Petraeus in the book and and, and his sort of it's not overtly. He doesn't think of himself as political necessarily, you know. Um, I mean, it's like what you said. He's post Vietnam. What kind of like history, politics, ideas are like informing the way he thinks about about what he's doing?
1: I, I mean, his 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 main area of interest is is his 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 research into counterinsurgency, which is one of the things that that would have. Um, I mean, comparative advantage. You know, you distinguish yourself by being good at something that somebody else isn't, right? And um, he, he had specialized in this, and he waited for his historical moment, and he caught it in a big way. So he's coming out of that. His historical, his historical consciousness must belong to the, the '70s and '80s. I don't know a lot about that period of his life, okay, yeah. honestly, But um, but that, um, and his co-authors are mostly either generational peers or of his. Just um, co-authors in the manual. I mean. Um, or a bunch of them were younger, right? Mm-hmm. So John Nagel um, and his, 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 his peers, David Kilcullen from down the road here, mm-hmm. um, they're, um, they're sort of Generation X types who um, came through the military. Um, uh, I mean, Nagel invaded Iraq for the first time, or rather invaded Kuwait, I guess, uh, in 91. He, 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 was, he was a tank officer going into, into the first Gulf War. So that's that that sort of end of history moment is the um, the catalytic moment for those guys surely, mm-hmm. and they were um, they were where they became somewhat skeptical of it uh, in various ways. So um, uh, Nagle is a Rhodes scholar; is, is does an Oxford PhD eventually, um, comparing the the British and uh, the British experience of Malaya and the American Army experience in um, in Vietnam. So again, it's it's that 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 long kind of 1960s, seventies moment,
0: yeah,
1: 60s, seventies um looking at um whether or not they learned institutionally um noddle and um and portrays both incidentally PhD specifically in international relations so I mean they're 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 from our side of the fence if you like uh you and I at least yeah um a lot of the, the other folks uh, along are are anthropo- a few anthropologists a lot of historians a ton of military historians actually who just brought expertise in, in random things that seemed useful. Were, many of them were just kind of around when the book was written. Um, so it, it, it's a grab bag of people with different historical experiences. But, but Petraeus is, is um, I mean, it, 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 think of the political experience of being a kind of a, a mid-period boomer in America. I mean, he's, he's a product of all of that and he, and he hits the peak of his, his military officer career as, as, as general, lieutenant general around when um, uh, around when nine eleven happens and he becomes this. He, he becomes what we know out of that that chain of historical experiences.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is what's fucked up. Like that when you understand that, which your book conveys, like magisterially counterinsurgency itself is all about the politics of reaction and counterrevolution. And so it's a huge problem that counterinsurgency was like a The political mainstream for most of the past 20 years but also like petraeus was a darling of the democratic like high level political appointee under obama right a darling of the democratic party all the way up until he gets caught having an affair right and when he fell from grace it was not because of his politics or his association with bad foreign policy judgment it was like those things were not even viewed that way it's because he fucked a staffer so, like, if if not for that, he might have been a Democratic Party presidential candidate, you know, and like that's supposed to be the institutional left in America. So, like, I guess that makes me want to ask. How, <laughs> how would you classify liberal counterinsurgent intellectuals politically? Like some of so some of them are imperialists. Like I had a very confronting conversation with a former friend in 2016 he said he was an imperialist. Is the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that. He's like, but I can't say that publicly because it's not fashionable. That is a minority thing, I would hope. I could, that's the only time that happened in front of me. But some liberal counterinsurgent intellectuals think of themselves, I think, as like progressive, lowercase p. But would you say what they're doing is like a reactionary form of progressivism or is it just a category error and what they're practicing as politics is like not progressive at all.
1: A few things. I mean, there's always the, um, the our, our categories of analysis will eventually just break down in the face of the of the, the, yeah. uh, the, the noise of practice here. Sometimes, right? It's a little hard to say. Um, would Petraeus answer to the word liberal? Possibly. I, I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what his party registration is. None. Um, American connections. He kind of played footsie with Trump over being Secretary of State at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean he's an opportunist among other things i think it's not unreasonable to say that in, in ways that would make him ideologically a bit flexible
0: mm-hmm.
1: um the the positionality of um of reaction as a category is is tricky around the post 9 11 space simply because a lot of islamists are best described just in ordinary language terms as reactionary in various ways so it's a kind of a political revolution that itself has deeply conservative or right-wing attachments in some respects um, and that makes the response to it a bit a bit more complicated to classify. So um, uh, there's a lot of noise in the system as we try to classify these guys. Yeah. It varies. I, I, at the end of the chapter on, on the book, I, I do a sort of a where are they now real about some of these folks. And I mean, uh, Noggle did a stint at uh, Project for New... Uh, the, CNS. I,
0: I used to work at CNS, yeah. yeah. There
1: we go, yeah. <laughs> he, he came through that sort of space. I think he had an FPRI affiliation at one point. Um, he was, uh, out of the military, out of the academy for a while running, uh, a, a boys private school in Pennsylvania, I think. And he's, he's back at yeah. one of the, uh, the defense universities now. Um, so you, these people circulate, right? I mean, I, th- I think it probably makes sense to think about it as being the, the kind of the, if you imagine that the, the larger scope of the blob around the American foreign policy establishment, I mean, it's, it's people circulating through those networks in large part. Um, so their ideological attachments are to the American state and um to their career trajectories inside that space i mean it's not unlike the thinking of your 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 last episode they talk about sort of think tank career tracks and the Mm -hmm. things you have to do to maintain them i think a lot of these people belong um if not exactly ideologically then um professionally to those spaces in a way that means they move around a bit They, they move in those circles they know those people those 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 um if i understand right those uh those those populations as groups cross the aisle a fair bit so to speak yeah so i mean, i think these guys belong to that And to the extent that some of these some of these counterinsurgency officers became somewhat distrusted in the american military establishment as, as they did it's because they were perceived as political um not as ideological in any specific way but as just like i like maybe they were just hanging out with suits a bit too much yeah they were not not military professionals in a pure enough sense
0: opportunists looking for the next rung yeah
1: which they did i mean yeah the, uh, the, all all of the apparently all of the officers who led the, the war in afghanistan just just all of them went into finance eventually or consulting or other kind of kind of big dollar financial spaces
0: yeah yeah i need there's more there's more to be said there's a there's a story there that's been not told well enough yet jesus so this is one of the reasons the book was so important like anybody who had the irony of like having an allergy to counterinsurgency you know if you're that kind of person the book is like really essential because it's like to if the national security state is venerating this particular mode of engaging with the world then like you have to understand the sort of politics that come with that and um we spent 20 years not Like black boxing, what they're bracketing off those, those politics. Um, but they were still there. I guess as a final question, and maybe this is more speculative like reactionary politics right now, it's obviously resurgent around the world, big MAGA right stuff, you know, but in, in, in other places outside of the US too. I would not say that counterinsurgency per se is popular right now, though. Like that's not resurging. So, like, how do you think about? there's these the way these things relate like is counterinsurgency one of multiple modes of sort of military thought in service of reactionary political projects but there are like other modes that we just haven't sort of packaged that way yet
1: i I mean certainly it's not it's not coextensive with the whole political reaction or even military reaction i wouldn't think i mean we can imagine um reactionary um reactionary insurrectionary projects Uh, we we may or may not have seen some shades of that in the U.S. in the last decade right yeah Uh, I mean in Noggle and Kilcullen were both read as quite um, quite alarmist I think around um, around 2020 around the possibility of some sort of armed um, armed something bad around um around the the election and the impending defeat of Donald Trump
0: counterinsurgency at home I hadn't thought about that yeah and and
1: (laughs) they um uh i i i hesitate to be to be too direct about this but they were kind of right in that instance yeah yeah um uh, this is all pre-january 6 right um and then well it turned out there was a real problem it was actually pretend potentially armed and potentially quite dangerous um and there still is as far as i can tell i mean when when chris and i wrote that that more general article in reaction i mean speaking just for myself this is the sort of set of concerns that motivated me so um uh, what does it look like going forward? Well, I mean, political reaction in an armed form can look potentially like a lot of different things. Um, uh, armed political reaction in the Second World War looked like the Third Reich. Um, these days, it may look like look like some guys with guns storming the um, storming the Capitol building in Washington DC. I don't know yeah. uh, going forward. It, it's it's potentially variable. You don't want to make too tight a prediction. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's something you should not worry about.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Well, man, this has been awesome. The book is called The Counterinsurgent Imagination and Intellectual History. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, a new intellectual history. Great book. Thanks for coming on the show. This was awesome. This is a lot of fun. Thanks very much. All right. Take care.